Amen. All right, your bulletin says that our second reading is Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and those are present in your bulletin. I am going to, however, read Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through uh, 9. And I can do that. Here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, sir? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who has called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is the word of the Lord. So the title of this sermon is, May the Lord give you everything you ask for. May the Lord give you everything you ask for. Which is quite a prayer. That's quite a benediction. It comes from our call to worship this morning, which was from Acts, uh, from uh, Psalm 20. Uh, that psalm also says, may the Lord answer you in times of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from his holy place. May he support you from Zion. May he give you what you really want. May he make all your plans successful. Those are some extraordinary prayers, some extraordinary benedictions. I would love for someone to pronounce that psalm over me every day of the year. But what brought me to this particular psalm on this particular Sunday was this line. This is verse 3 from Psalm 20. And we hear the psalmist pray, may he remember all the gifts you have offered. May he accept all of your sacrifices. In the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, there was something called a memorial sacrifice. And all three of the scripture passages we've looked at this morning mention or are about memorial sacrifices. Now, of course, in the word memorial, you hear the word memory or remember, memorial sacrifices were designed to prompt God to remember us. Now, I live in Willow Grove near a little park called Memorial Park. It's called Memorial Park because it's a war memorial. And that park is there to jog our memory, to help us recall sacrifices that have been made in past wars. In that park, there is a bust of a Desert Storm soldier, there is a Huey helicopter from the Vietnam War, and there is a howitzer from the Second World War. And on a number of occasions, when I've driven past that piece of artillery, it's on 
the way to my grocery store, my daughter Mia has asked me, did Uncle Stanley fight in the Second World War? Now she knows the answer to that question, but she likes to think about it again. She likes to hear about her great uncle in his radio shack aboard a ship off the beach at Anzio, where U.S. and British forces suffered more than 40,000 casualties at the hands of the Nazis. Or off the beach of Iwo Jima, where Marines finally managed to raise the U.S. flag after five deadly weeks of battle against dug-in Japanese troops. That field gun, that howitzer parked alongside of a city street in Willow Grove acts as a memorial. Every time we drive past it, we remember something that happened a long time ago, some things that we weren't thinking about a moment earlier. That's what memorials do. They prompt us to recall, to remember things. And in Old Testament times, memorial sacrifices were made to prompt God to remember us. Now, all of us are busy these days. Our brains are more distracted, more data-soaked than ever. Getting people's attention is hard. Holding their attention is harder. Why take the trouble to create a memorial to prompt us, to force us, to move us, to think about things that we wouldn't be thinking about otherwise? Why do that? Why go to all of the trouble? Why remind people of past wars? Don't I already have enough to think about without thinking about the past? I mean, after all, last week, Kim Kardashian turned 40. And Rudy Giuliani tucked in his pants. Isn't that enough to think about? Remembering the past is central to biblical religion. Remembering the mighty deeds of the Lord has always been part of biblical Worship, being a Christian, isn't just believing certain facts about Jesus. It's also remembering and reflecting upon and meditating on what God has done in the past. The far past, but also our recent past. Not that we are stuck in the past. We don't do those things because we're antiquarians or historians. We do those things because remembering what God has done in the past for us shows us how God operates in the present world. God's character hasn't changed. And so the way he's behaved in the past is a clue to how he's going to behave today, which is why the story of salvation history is always timely. It's always up to date. We Christians view the news of the world and the events of our lives through the lens of Biblical stories. For American slaves, the story of the exodus out of Egypt was compelling. Remembering that God once had freed a whole race of people from slavery gave them hope and sustained them. That story gave them the courage that they needed over many, many long years. The story of the prodigal son which is not actually a historical story, but which is a parable. The story of the prodigal son has been important in the lives of many, many people, whether they see themselves as the parent who's lost a child or the prodigal child who has returned home or maybe the good child who stayed at home. 
We see ourselves in these biblical stories. The biblical stories help us make sense of our own lives. Because the character of God doesn't change. What he did in the past, he will do today. And because human beings don't change. When we read stories in the Bible, we read about people who are just like us. Historical, biblical thinking is Christian thinking. And in the midst of this COVID plague, maybe some of us are thinking about the plague stories of the Bible. How did God's people respond to the plagues that they suffered? Recently, I've been hearing Christians thinking about our current political situation in terms of King Cyrus, the pagan king who did so much for the people of God, drawing them out of Babylon. Or King Saul, the king God gave to the Israelites because they begged for a king, even though God told them that they didn't really need a king. Christians think biblically, and that means Christians think historically. We remember what God has done in the past, and that memory is a regular part of our lives and our worship. Now here at HVPC, we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. We do that to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a commandment. And so we do it. We redo the Last Supper again and again, once a month. We remember Jesus. And when I say we remember Jesus, I don't mean that we forgot him. If I were to quiz you all, you all know that Jesus died on a cross, but we keep circling back to that same story to remind ourselves about it so that it shapes our heart and our thinking. One reason that regular weekly worship is important is because we need to be reminded on a regular basis of the truths of Scripture. It's not that we need new information necessarily. Maybe you've already been thoroughly schooled in the Scriptures. Maybe you have a great memory and you have studied your lessons well, but you still need to be in church every week. Most Sunday sermons simply remind us of the things that we already know. We keep circling back to the grand old stories, and they are important. I know that World War II happened, but every time I drive past that howitzer, I think about it again. And that's how worship works as well. The story of Cornelius that we're digging into today, I trust, is a familiar story for all of you. I think you've all heard this one since your Sunday school days. But we're going to remind ourselves uh, about it again uh, as we move on. The Last Supper, of course, was um, a Passover meal. And, of course, Passover is the great memorial celebration of the Jewish people. And at that Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples remembered the Lord's mighty deeds in rescuing his people from slavery. And, of course, they hadn't forgotten that. But by remembering it, as they're doing the Passover, they experience it again and they relive it. They relive the wonderful story of God's salvation of God's people. Now, you might want to think about this kind of worshipful remembering, recollection, recall, the way that 
you think about your mind going back to again and again to sweet days in your life, to important moments in your history. We enjoy remembering those things and those memories are part of who we are and they form part of our character. If we were to lose those memories, somehow we would lose part of who we are. People who live without memory, and I'm not talking about Alzheimer's patients, I'm talking about people who have no cultural memory, people with no history, they are less steady. They're more easily distressed when trouble arises. Trouble, of course, always arises from time to time. But if we have a memory of past troubles, when some new trouble comes up, we don't react like it's the end of the world. We've seen this kind of thing in the past. We have a long view. We have a sense of God's presence with his people. And it makes us calmer and more settled and less anxious and afraid. Having a long memory of God reassures us that we've been through this kind of stuff in the past and God has carried us through and there's no reason to think that this time won't be just the same. News is called news because it's new. But the longer your historical memory is, the more you realize that what some pup calls new is not so new at all. But it's just the same old stuff that we've been through before, so there's no reason to panic. Let me put it this way. The news will make your heart rate go up. I think that's what it's designed to do. Even that exciting music that they have at the beginning. Dun, 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 dun. Who wrote that? Are they getting royalties? The news makes your heart rate go up and will probably shorten your life. Reading history, on the other hand, Anna Fluter, by the way, is reading Ron Chernow's 800-page history of Alexander Hamilton. Very admirable. History and Remembering the mighty deeds of our God in the past will make your heart rate go down. And will probably make you live longer. The sad thing about people who have no memory is that they are perpetually unsure about what tomorrow will hold. And they're also perpetually unsure of who they are. They are unrooted. They are Riding the wave of the moment, they're perpetually anxious and uncertain about their futures. But people who know the scriptures, people who have a long experience of God's operation in their lives, they stand the test of time, they flourish, and they're filled with confidence and joy. As the psalmist says in the first psalm, they are like trees planted by rivers of water. Memory is important to the people of God. Memory shapes the character of the people of God. Memory is part of the muscle and the strength of our faith because we look back and we remember what God has done for us in the past. And that gives us confidence about what he will do for us in the future. A faithful Christian does not have a dystopian view of The future. Dystopian views, which are so popular, are pagan. They're not Christian. 
We know that God is good. We know that God sustains his people in all times. And we know that the end of human history will be a glorious triumph for God and his people. For us, the future is beautiful. And we know that in part because we know our past. Now, let me say one more thing that might be a little surprising. While it makes sense that we should remember God and remember the mighty deeds of God, have you ever thought about God remembering you? Because that was the purpose of the memorial sacrifice, that God would remember us. That's the gist of the prayer that we hear in Psalm 20. May he remember you. And the gifts that you've offered. Because that's what the angel announces to Cornelius. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Another translation of that passage reads, God has heard your prayers and has seen your gifts to the poor. He remembers you. As biblical Christians, we remember God. But what about God remembering us? Have you thought about that? Just take a moment now. And imagine the angel of the Lord coming to you and saying, God remembers you and all that you've done. What would your reaction be? Would that be good news? Or would that scare the dickens out of you? And if it's hard for you to imagine angels coming and talking to you, imagine a friend or a colleague or a classmate or a co-worker coming up to you and saying, your wife heard what you did and she wants to talk to you. Or your boss heard what you did and he wants to see you in his office or the principal saw what you did and she wants you to stop by and visit with her. Is that good news or is that bad news? That God remembers us. Here are two very important things that I want you to hear, understand, and remember this morning. Two important things about God's remembering of God's people. And then we're going to finally get back to Acts. Number one, scriptures are full of promises that God chooses to not remember our sins. Let me say that again. Scripture is full of promises that God chooses to not remember our sin. Listen to the word of the Lord and believe it. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. Hebrews 8, 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 1, 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. These are all pronouncements from God that God will choose to not remember our sins. It's not that God is forgetful. But God chooses what he will retain in his mind and he chooses what he will blot out. He can do that. He's sovereign. He gets to make the rules. And now listen to a couple of prayers from the Psalms. 
prayers that God would not remember stuff about us that makes our lives so perilous. Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Ah, Notice how the memory shows up there twice. Remember not my sins, but remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Psalm 79, 8 and 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. David prays that God would forget his sins. God affirms that he will do that. But he also prays that God would remember him. Two parts to memory. One part is that God edits his own memory regarding his people, doing them the favor of retaining only what is good. That's huge. God chooses to forget our sins. Number two, while God chooses to forget our sins, he does not forget us. Now all of us have had people in our lives that we've forgotten. Not because they're bad people. Not that we didn't like them when we were with them, but there are a lot of people in our lives. And there are people that you went to school with that you don't remember anymore. People who worked with you at different places you've worked through the years that you don't remember anymore. Plenty of people who are just not in our minds anymore. We've moved on. We don't remember them. So hear me clearly. God will never forget you that way. He will always remember you. He will carry you in his heart and in his thoughts. He will persist in his kindly care for you even while he blots out the recollection of your sin. Jesus on the cross dying for our sins and crucified on either side of him are two ordinary criminals. One mocks Jesus. Tells him to come down off the cross. Oh, you think you're the Messiah. What are you doing up there on the cross? Why don't you get down if you're the Messiah? And the other one says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. God forgets the sins that we've committed when we are in Christ. But God remembers us as well. The beauty of the gospel is that it is a promise of both of these things that we need. The gospel promises us that God will forget our sins that he will sink them into the bottom of the sea, and the gospel simultaneously promises us that God will never forget us or ever overlook us or ever leave us behind. The memory of God. Think about it sometime. Think about how God's mighty brain works. All right, let's talk about Cornelius. I had an elder come to me last week. He said, you know, Pastor Dan, last week your sermon didn't have a whole lot to do with the Scripture text, which was a... (laughs) A good rebuke, right? I, I, I like it when people notice that kind of stuff. So uh, we, you know, we preach through whole books of the Bible here because we believe all of the Word of God uh, is, is uh, worthy of our attention, uh, and all of it has been inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit, and so we work through it carefully. So let's uh, turn now to uh, the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles uh, is a history Uh, It's full of episodes and anecdotes from the early church. Uh, Most of those stories are told in a very...
compact way. The death of Ananias and Sapphira, for example, takes 11 verses. The election of the first deacons only takes six verses. But this week we have begun a story, the story of Cornelius, that is the single longest story in the book. You might want to ask yourself, why is this story the longest story? Why did this particular event attract the attention of the author of the Acts of the Apostles in such a way? It it covers 66 verses, which is really long. In my mind, it kind of reads like a five-act play. You know the whole story, so... um, Let me just sketch it out for you again so we can have it in our minds. Act 1, with a message from an angel, God tells Cornelius to go find Peter. Act number 2, with a sheet uh, full of animals coming down out of the sky, God tells Peter he can eat anything, including bacon-wrapped shrimp with cheese fries. Act number 3, Cornelius sends some of his men to go fetch Peter. Act number four, Peter comes and preaches to Cornelius and his household. Act number five, the Holy Spirit falls upon these crazy Gentiles. They're all converted, and Peter baptizes them. And then there's an epilogue in chapter 11 where Peter goes and checks with the other apostles back in Jerusalem. Was it okay for me to do this? Okay, I hope I didn't spoil the story for any of you. You probably already know it. Now, what I want you to notice in this opening part of the story of Cornelius, and we'll probably be in this story for three or four weeks, what I want you to notice is that there are two visions going on at the same time in different parts of town in this story of Cornelius and Peter. Two separate visions which bring these men together for a divine appointment. And you'll recall that a similar thing happened not so long ago with Saul and Ananias. Two separate visions in two parts of Damascus bring Saul and Ananias together in a divine appointment. What I just want to say to you is your life has similar appointments. In our normal lives, we don't get to see God working both ends To bring people together, but the narrator of the Acts of the Apostles has this God's eye view. And so he sees what's going on. God is working at both ends to get people together that he wants to be together. And in your life, there will be similar appointments. I just want you to be ready for them. Okay, Don't be surprised when they turn up. In the divine appointment between Peter and Cornelius, God has in mind a double blessing. There's a blessing for Cornelius, and there's a blessing for Peter, or maybe Peter as the representative of the church. Let's call it one blessing for Cornelius and one blessing for the church. A double blessing. Okay? So Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But he believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's apparently a good man, even though he's a Roman soldier. He's a prayerful man, we hear. He follows God's law, we know, because he's giving alms to the poor, which is something that God commands us to do. We are commanded to take care of the poor and to be very liberal in how we give out our money. And one day, an angel is sent to Cornelius, and God says through the angel that God has remembered him. 
God notices him. An angel comes to Cornelius and declares, God has remembered you. And God has in mind for Cornelius a special blessing. We don't know what kind of things Cornelius was praying about. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it would be safe to bet that Cornelius wasn't praying to have a meeting with Peter. It's safe to bet that Cornelius wasn't praying that God would reveal the Messiah to him. God has this blessing in mind for Cornelius, even though Cornelius doesn't know that that blessing is even possible. It is good for us to pray to God for the things that our hearts desire. Okay? Psalm 20. May God give you what you really want. May the Lord give you everything you ask for. It's good to pray to God for the things that your heart desires, but be ready when God gives you something better than what you wanted. Sometimes we pray to avoid the very thing that moves our lives forward. Sometimes we pray to avoid the change that would open our lives up. It's good to pray to God for the things that you want, but be ready that God may give you something better. When God gives you something better than what you prayed for, be receptive to that and just give Him thanks. The Jews, of course, had a relationship with God. That's a wonderful thing, a blessed thing. God chose them for a special favor. And Cornelius, even though he wasn't born in a Jewish family, has come to realize that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only true God. He's living in a world with a million gods, all competing for his attention. And Cornelius realizes that this one God, Yahweh, this God down in Zion, he's the real thing. Super. Good news. But there's more. Cornelius had a relationship with God, a kind of through-the-side-door relationship because he wasn't born as a Jew. But God has something else and something bigger in mind for him, a fuller, deeper relationship through Jesus Christ. I don't know that Cornelius has heard about Jesus Christ. There's no indication from the Scriptures that he had. God, of course, has revealed himself in many ways through the centuries, but his fullest, his complete revelation is in Jesus. And God wants Cornelius to meet Jesus, to learn the gospel. And so he sends an angel, a messenger, to Cornelius and tells him to go find this guy called Simon. That's going to be Cornelius' blessing. The blessing that Cornelius didn't pray for. Now, let's talk about the church's blessing or Peter's blessing, however you want to look at it. And this also is a blessing that the church didn't necessarily pray for. At the same time, in another part of the town, God is preparing Peter for his encounter with Cornelius. Peter is born a Jew. He's a follower of Jesus. He has Jewish ideas about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. He's not ready for Gentiles to be grafted in to Abraham. He's not ready to believe that Gentiles can be children of the promise. And so God sends him this very strange vision of a sheet filled with all kinds of animals. We'll talk more about that next week, but I'm sure you remember the scene. This sheet full of animals. As a Jew, certain kinds of food were unclean. They were off limits. They were not permitted 
for children of God, but God fills a sheep with all kinds of animals and tells Peter to eat. It's not really about the food. It is about God welcoming the wider world into the promises of Abraham. It's about the the church being blessed with people from every tribe and every tongue. Peter probably wasn't praying for that to happen. Peter probably was content to just have, you know, all the Jews rounded up and let them be the good Christians. Peter probably wasn't praying for a bunch of pagans and Gentiles to all of a sudden start becoming followers of Jesus, but that's the blessing that God had in mind for him and for the church, a greater blessing than Peter had hoped for, that Peter had prayed for. So I encourage you to keep praying for the things that you want, but keep your eyes open for greater blessings that God has in store for you. All right, I don't know if I preach this passage yet. I'll have to talk with that elder later. Um, That's all I've got about Acts right now. Let me say this in closing. If you are at this moment still outside of Christ, you know about Jesus, but you've not committed yourself to Jesus yet. If you are still outside of Christ, let me invite you to jump on board today. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus was sent to make a way for us to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus is God, which means he's very powerful. It also means that he will be the judge of all people at the end of time. But Jesus is also really human. He lived like we do. He understands our lives and our temptations. He loves us. He obeyed the Father and died on the cross to pay the divine penalty for our sins. That's why our sins can be forgotten. Because they were paid for. We don't remember the sins that have already been paid for. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer remembers our sin. It's not that he's forgetful, but he makes a choice. And that's good news. If you're already in Christ... I want you to live into the truth that God forgets your sins, but he remembers you. And I want you to remain open to divine appointments. God may be working at two sides of town today so that you have an encounter with someone that will bless both of you. And those blessings may be larger and different than the blessings that you were praying for. Keep your eyes open to that possibility. Don't let your prayer life shrink the possibilities of what God's going to do. Let it be open and expansive. Ask for what your heart desires. But stay open to the possibility that God will give you more. Let me close uh, where we began. These are the words from Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in time of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from his holy place. May he support you from Zion. May he remember all the gifts you've offered. May he accept your sacrifices. May he give you what you really want. May he make all your plans successful. We will celebrate when he helps you. We will praise the name of God. May the Lord give you everything that you ask for.
the word of the Lord for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name and we thank you that your word is true, that it stands the test of time. We pray that you would seal it to our hearts, that you would let your word fly straight and true and find its mark um, where you had intended it to land. Lord, may we be not only hearers of the word, but doers as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.